0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week, Hattie Williams talks to the Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin, about his report on the social legacy of Grenfell. And I talk to the Reverend Nicholas Mercer, a former Lieutenant Colonel in the British Army, who campaigns with the charity Redress on behalf of survivors of torture. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Church Times. For £10, try 10 issues, along with full access to our website, archive, and iPhone and iPad app. Or for the same amount, two months full online access including our website, digital edition, archive and app. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. On the 14th of June 2017, a fire broke out shortly before 1am in the Grenfell Tower block of flats in West London. It went on to destroy the tower block and resulted in the tragic deaths of 72 people. Ahead of the second anniversary of the Grenfell disaster, the Bishop of Kensington, Dr Graham Tomlin, published a report. It's called The Social Legacy of Grenfell, An Agenda for Change. It's based on conversations he had with residents, volunteers, community groups, faith leaders and activists, among others, at the end of last year and earlier this year. Hattie Williams spoke to Bishop Tomlin about the report and what he hopes it will achieve.
1: So first of all, can you just tell me about the report, what moved you to write it?
2: One was that I was aware that with the public inquiry going on, most of the Public inquiry is focusing on questions of the fire itself, the cause of it, and presumably what will come out of it, hopefully, is changes to the way we do buildings, cladding, and building regulations, fire safety, and all of that, which is really important, vital that that happens. But it struck me that there were some wider social issues that were raised at the time of the fire, which were in danger of getting lost. Grenfell was a a kind of once-in-a-generation opportunity to address some, some really quite fundamental questions about how we live together that if we just focused on fire safety and building regulations, we would miss an opportunity to do that kind of more radical thinking about about our life together. And it's really that story of Jesus and the Gospels, the, the Tower of Siloam, and it's his, it's really, you know, well, unless you change, do will perish. There's a sense of, you know, unless you do the deeper thinking, you've missed an opportunity and you will lose that as a result. And so so is that and honoring those who died in We owe it to them to do that deeper thinking about what lessons we learn from it.
1: You spoke to many people to put this report together. What was your overriding sense of kind of the mood of the people you talked to, and obviously both residents, families, and, and also you, you said you spoke to council members as well.
2: I think a mixture of things. I mean, one, I mean, I was picking up a lot of frustration still that uh, you know, a good year and a half, two years on, not as much has changed as people had hoped uh, or had well, had longed for. There's a fair degree of frustration about it. There was a, a deep sense, I think, of a community not having, not feeling heard, both before the fire and, and even since. And there's, you know, there's been more listening and hearing since the fire, which has been good. Mm. Uh, but still, a sense of messages not not getting through in quite the same way. Like I also picked up. Uh, a real sort sense of determination I think, within the local community to see change
3: mm.
2: and uh, not giving up yet on, on the prospect of, of uh, a significant change happening both locally and sort of nationally. Uh, I guess most people were focusing upon the, the the local issues. I guess my particular interest was, you know, what does this say to us more, more widely across the, the nation? So those are the sort of things I was picking up in the conversations
1: how do you compare for example that initial response from the government or lack of response from the government compared to say that overwhelming almost response from from the church both locally and the wider church as well
2: I think the church and you know, local organizations could respond in an immediate way uh, because they were they were the first responders they were people on the ground you know the churches and other local community groups had deep roots in the community were trusted in a way that the council and the government uh, wasn't. So in some ways, the churches were able to play their role. But I think at the same time, you know, when you think of the church, the local you know Muslim community centre, the, mm. uh, the local community, you know, community groups, they could only do so much. They could do immediate response. But what, what was really needed was a sort of wider, coordinated response. And I think that's where things fell down at a, a, you know, a bit at the time. Mm. And so it's not that the church could do something that the state couldn't. Mm. The state could do something the church couldn't. There are different roles there to play, but I suppose my particular interest is, is not you know, the the immediate response, but you know what are the kind of deeper underlying causes that led to the fire and the tension that it laid bare, and how do we address those for the
1: future? What do you hope to actually achieve from this particular report, and uh, do you feel confident that this is something that the government are going to read and pay attention to? I would very
2: much hope so, because it comes just with my authority but it comes, in a sense, as a process of careful listening from the local community in around the Grenfell Tower. And I think that community, I think, does need to be listened to, you know. And, and uh, you know, the attention has focused upon that community since the fire, and it's a, it's a really important test case for government to listen to quite carefully. My role, I think, has been not to suggest answers. I mm. think that's for politicians to work out. My role has been to listen quite carefully, to try to... Um, uh, we need to give a give a framework and try and reflect back what I've what I've heard.
1: Mm.
2: My hope is that it will set a bit of a, an agenda. We, you know, we're at a turning point in our national life with Brexit mm. on the horizon, with a new Prime Minister coming, with all kinds of changes happening, and you know, a real fear of polarisation and, and us being pulled apart as a society. And my hope is that this might set a, a framework, an agenda, a set of questions that a new government, a new Prime Minister, could pick up. And run with as a way of addressing some of the key issues that are our, facing our society as we try to chart a way into the future as we try to think about what post Brexit Britain might look like. Mm.
1: And for you, as, as Bishop of, of Kensington, how's the last few years, um, the last two years since the fire, I mean, what has that experience taught you um, as a church leader, particularly given the conversations that you've had and, and that sense of listening as well?
2: It's taught me a lot about the way in which communities work and don't work. Mm taught me a lot about the, the, the real intense desire for change within the local community in that part of London, but also the challenges that are faced by it, you know, in, in, in the sheer variety, uh, like the diversity of the it's challenges with it at the same time when you've got such diversity of wealth, of equality, of religion, of ethnicity, you know, and all concentrated in one small part of of um, London. I think it's also taught me about the significance and importance of the local church as a centre for for drawing people together as a neutral space, if you like, which isn't part of the government, isn't part of the state, isn't mm. sort of um, funded in way by them, and therefore can play a key role in them. And uh, I think it's me it's something about how the church can convene people, bring people together in a way that other people can't. I remember these conversations, it was fascinating that when we reached out to different groups, many of them were really keen to be part of it. They wanted to say, you know, thank you for, for, for listening, because that, that hasn't been as much listening as we hoped in this process and I think we could do that in a way we we could do that in a way that probably the council or the government couldn't have done because churches are still on the whole trusted in local communities in a way that sometimes the state may or may not be.
1: Are you confident about the the ongoing inquiry in terms of its conclusions and and how it's being dealt with?
2: It would have been good if they were been able to say something uh, Mm -hmm. about the, the direction of travel at the same time Caught between, in realising the complexity of the challenge that the qu- inquiry has to work out, you know, in, in intense detail, minute by minute, what happened uh, at the time of the fire, and I fully recognise the complexity of that task. But at the same time, feeling the pastoral need of people for some form of progress, some form of news, some mm-hmm. form of, um, of, of a move forward, and that's the tricky issue I think at the moment is it's, it's uh, you know bridging that gap. The need locally for some uh, some answers. You know, the longer it goes on, the harder it gets to to, to deal with the lack of answers. Yeah. Uh, but with the inquiries, need to do its job thoroughly and, and, and properly. Reflecting on the church's role in this and this exercise, but I mean, a large part of what we have to do, you know, we we pray in the Lord's prayer, "Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." And Part mm-hmm. of our role as the church is to try to imagine what it would be like for the kingdom of God to come on earth yeah. as it is in heaven. And in a way, this exercise is an exercise of the imagination, trying to kind of think about what would it look like
3: mm.
2: um, for us to have a, a renewed sense of democracy, where everyone felt they really had a say on issues that mattered. You know, what would it look like to offer support that really did work with, rather than just for people who were in, in dire straits? In you know, what would it look like to have a kind of community where we were able to bridge the gaps and the the, the you know the polarisation of our society? And what would it look like to have housing that was adequate for? Uh, all you know in both social housing, and housing the built community, and, and, and how would it look like? You know, that really did society that did leverage faith groups uh, and others. So, as I say, I mean, it's, it's not trying to provide answers, but it's trying to stimulate our imagination as a society to think about you know what what would it look like uh, for our communities to work in this way, and, and hopefully to stimulate those who have the responsibility to put into place some policies dream to think big uh, about what our society could be like.
0: The Reverend Nicholas Mercer is a vocal critic of the practice of torture. He's a former lieutenant colonel in the British Army who witnessed torture during the 2003 Iraq War. He writes in this week's Church Times about why Christians should care about torture and what can be done to stop it. I spoke to him. So, Reverend Nicholas Mercer, you, you've written in this week's Church Times um, about the... United Nations International Day in Support of Victims of Torture, which takes place on the 26th of June. Could you tell us something about that day and why it's important?
3: Yes, well, the um, uh, United Nations have set aside this day uh, to remember uh, victims of torture and to stand in solidarity with, their, with the victims of torture and their families. Um, it's also a reminder to all of us, too, that torture is still alarmingly pervasive across the world uh, and very often hidden from view so doubly important but not only do we remember the victims of torture uh, but also don't allow it to remain hidden uh, and seek to challenge it wherever it may occur so the day is is very important to mark the anniversary of the un convention against torture uh, and inhuman and degrading treatment and it's passing into law in 1997.
0: When people think of torture they may have an an image in their mind I mean what sort of things can constitute torture?
3: Well, there, there, are two, there are two component parts to the UN Convention. The first is torture, and and torture is also linked to inhuman and degrading treatment. And both are outlawed under international law. But the, the extent, duration, and intensity can make one activity and turn it from inhuman and degrading treatment into torture, and really, it's as as, as varied as, as the word suggests. I mean, we have when we use the word torture, we think of the London dungeon and how we tortured suspects into into making confessions through the rack and other uh, such like activities. But today, that's been replaced by things like waterboarding, so that induces the sense of drowning in the victim. So. When you go to the London Dungeon and you see that and think, gosh, it belongs to a bygone age. No, it doesn't. It's happening you know, in our own times. And what's even more alarming, it's not just some despotic regime at the other side of the world in a place where the public, the general public haven't got access. It's happening in the United States. And the United Kingdom has been complicit in it. So that's at its most extreme one sort of example of what happens, that people have been electrocuted. Electrodes have been placed on parts of their body, their genitalia, uh, their nipples, for instance. People have been beaten. People have been beaten on the soles of their feet. Uh, and actually, then there the are types of activity that don't cause marks to the body, and that's quite deliberate as well, because they realized when they tortured someone and, and they sought to address it, that if you left marks on the body, it was easily identifiable as to what had happened to them. So they developed a thing called the five techniques, where yeah, they mess with your head to put it into so in the vernacular by torturing you mentally through sleep deprivation, food deprivation, uh, sight deprivation through hooding, and a thing called white noise, where they play noise to you just constantly you sort of you want to put your hands over your ears and scream, but day after day, night after night, uh, that has you know people are mental affected for the rest of their lives, and that too can be either inhuman and degrading treatment or at its more extreme level can become torture.
0: You're currently a clergyman in the Church of England, but prior to that you were a um, senior officer in the British Army, so you, mm. you have personal experience of this.
3: Yes, I mean, I, I came across this by accident. I was a senior lawyer in the Iraq War uh, in theatre, and I was at the prisoner of war camp uh, very early on in the conflict, and as I was going into the prisoner of war camp on, a, on an unrelated issue, I saw an interrogation cell to my right. And I walked in on this interrogation facility to find Iraqi prisoners of war in stress position and hooded uh, with white noise being played uh, prior to interrogation. So I tried to intervene to stop it. Um, The interrogators weren't subject to the chain of command, our chain of command. Uh, So I lodged a formal complaint with the 1st Armored Division GOC that night. uh, And that has become, you know, an ongoing theme because that wasn't an isolated incident it was pervasive across the whole of iraq uh, and went on for years uh, and so it's only now i think a decade almost two decades later that the united kingdom has finally got its act together and, and hopefully these practices are no longer prevalent
0: so you think things have changed since um you know
3: it has it's, we we we've we, realize that the Army was carrying out what's called the Five Techniques in 2003. That went on for a number of years, but the Army then changed that to a policy called Harshing, uh, which was was to create harsh conditions for the prisoner. But that, too, was inhuman and degrading because it subjected the prisoners to violence and sexual and religious humiliation. So that then got stopped as well. And now they've introduced a new procedural direct challenge and although the guidelines are lawful the implementation of those guidelines have been implemented unlawfully so bit by bit we edge towards hopefully interrogation practices that are lawful and treat the prisoner with decency and humanity.
0: And, and just finally um redress which you're a which you're a trustee um, a, a campaign campaign on behalf of survivors yeah. of, of torture you write in the Church Times this week about what churches can be doing. I mean, why should churches be involved in this, and what can they do?
3: Well, I think that for a number of reasons, theologically, if we're made in image and likeness of God, then we don't torture our fellow human beings. Secondly, our Lord himself was tortured. And each week at Holy Week, we you know, sit and listen to this horrific story of his torture and execution And if that's still going on in the world, then Christians should stand united against it. And thirdly, I think it's because of the point I made at the beginning. You know, this is very often hidden from view. And as I say in my article, God hears the groans of prisoners. And it's important, too, that we shouldn't let this be shut away in some dark cell, in some for God's sake hole in somewhere in the world. We, too, should hear those groans at least once a year and direct people's attention towards this manifest.
0: And can congregations can be involved in? Um, sort of yes, we've,
3: we've done. We've done. We've provided a whole load, a whole load of material to help congregations uh, with this uh, UN day in remembrance of the victims of tortures. We've provided prayers. We've provided reflections. I've even written a sermon. So anyone who wants to preach on that day, uh, I've written a sermon that can be used in pulpits up and down the land, and I hope people will do that.
0: And these would all be available at redress.org?
3: Yeah, and they're all available through your websites. and website. And, and you can go to redress as well at redress.org, as you say. Redress had been working for about uh, 30 or so years uh, and were founded uh, by Keith Carmichael, who was tortured in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he resolved that when he got back to the United Kingdom, he would work for the rest of his days to try and stop torture across the world. And that's what we're seeking to do
1: today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.